Hello, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Welcome to The Long Way, a podcast of short episodes with long perspectives on building the common good. Free speech in a toxic culture, communicating across political divides, these are among the biggest challenges of our times. And don't tell me it's just a problem in the United States. No, it's a problem in Canada, too. You can't assume that every time we confront somebody who self-identifies as being on the left, that we're going to disagree with them on everything. And I think the left has to do the same. They have to, they, ha- they can't keep on assuming that because somebody votes for a conservative party, that they're racist, sexist, anti-gay, homophobe, transphobe, anti-feminist, whatever you want to call it. I've just played you a clip from our feature guest, Danielle Smith, a journalist and commentator who until recently hosted a very successful radio show on AM 770 in Calgary. But she's given up that show and said goodbye to thousands of Twitter followers earlier in 2021 because, well, she'll explain that in a sec. We'll also hear on this podcast from field reporter Peter Stockland bringing us the story of a very accomplished journalist, Brian Kapler, who still participates in social media, uh, only on weekends, though. Mainly I quit because I found it was it was a, a brutal time suck. I'm sure a lot of us can relate. That's coming up a little later in this episode. Meantime, if you're new to The Long Way, welcome. If you're a regular, welcome back. Glad to have you along. The Long Way is a different sort of podcast. For one thing, this podcast is produced by and for a think tank, Cardus, based in Hamilton, Ontario. My day job is communications director for Cardus, and I work out of the Ottawa office. Our work mostly involves producing and analyzing public policy on issues like education, family, work, uh, religious freedom. We want to help build a society where we all live together well, regardless of differences, And we want to enlarge public conversation on important issues in Canada and across North America. So this podcast is part of that effort to have better conversations about real issues. Now that means I genuinely would like to hear what you have to say about our interviews or the issues that we discuss. Write to me at media at cardis.ca. I have received some feedback from a listener to the first episode of Season 3 with guest Andrew Coyne, where we discussed media bias and false balance. This listener writes, I listened to your interview with Andrew Coyne, rallying to the defense of people like him making decisions for everyone else. I happen to like Andrew Coyne, but when people like him make decisions for everyone else, it usually goes badly for the kinds of things that I care about. Well, look, I can't relitigate that interview right now, but I will say this. There has to be a way to preserve the professionalism and reliability that comes with what most would call mainstream media, which is what Coyne was defending, while recognizing that at least to some degree the trust between audience and mainstream media has been broken, which I think is what my listener friend is getting at. Well... Don't know what your thoughts are on that. Media at Cardis.ca if you want to write in. In the meantime, our featured guest, Danielle Smith, has some insights into all of this, I'm sure. Danielle Smith, thank you so much for joining me on The Long Way. My pleasure. So you're gone from radio. It hasn't been that long, but how does it feel? 
it's uh, it's a relief, actually, because in some ways, radio, I don't know if people realize just how intensive it is. You can't really do anything else when you're when you're doing a, a talk radio show. So I had been covering you know, for the Edmonton station for the last six months. So I was doing three and a half hours of radio a day with two and a half hour crossover province wide, half an hour in Edmonton, half an hour in Calgary. That's a lot of topics. You have to do six or seven topics a day, 35 topics a week, have to research all of them. So it was a really exhausting period of time for me over, I was almost there for, for six years. So in some ways I've got a little bit of a breather, but I have also had so many requests from alternative media that I've been out doing podcasts and guest hosting and appearances. And um, I, I, in some ways, I'm, I'm almost busier, but I'm able to do a lot more. And I'm pretty excited about what the opportunities are going to be. So you're gone from radio, but you're not gone from media. And this podcast, for example, is proof of that. It's true. And uh, I, the other thing I'm doing, and I, I didn't I didn't know that I'd get requests from alternative media. I'm surprised at how many that I got because I didn't get very many requests to be on alternative media when I was in mainstream media. Um, and I think maybe that's part of the rivalry that you see in some ways between the mainstream sources and alternative media is that in some ways the alternative media is trying to carve out a space for itself by saying, you're not going to get this anywhere but here. But by doing so, the mainstream media says, they're dissing us everywhere, so we're not going to have them on. So I, I would prefer to see a, a world where the mainstream media respects what's going on in the alt media a little bit more because there's some wonderful conversations that are happening there, long-form conversations, really deep and interesting topics. But it's almost like there's a, a wall between that and, and having it spill over into the mainstream. And I think alt media would do better to, to stop dissing mainstream media because I think if you could, uh, the, the sweet spot would be if you could do an interview that was so impactful that the mainstream media picked it up and ran it and then gave you credit that would then drive more traffic to your your various platforms. So I think that that would be one way that we can bridge some of the divide. And I think it'd be a lot healthier to have the, the debate continue on that way. So uh, the the uh, what, what I, where I've landed for the next few weeks anyway, until I find a job, because I am unemployed, is the Western Standard has asked me to be a guest host on a variety of topics for them. So we did our first one last, uh, oh, just on Monday. I was gonna say last week, that's how much, how busy my week has been. And then we'll be doing Tuesdays and Thursdays for, for three weeks to the end of March. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. It, it gives me a, an opportunity to do more of the long form style of interview that I wanted to do. Our first one with David Redman, who's an emergency management specialist, was two hours with lots of Q&A. So I'm, I'm really enjoying exploring a different type of, of medium. So yes, gone from mainstream media, gone from mainstream ra radio, but sadly for my critics, not gone from the public sphere. <laughs> right. And now, you know, doing a two hour podcast as opposed to three and a half hour radio show, it gives you quite, quite a break. I'm sure it's quite relaxing. Uh, um, you know, I, I want to explore one thing. Well, actually, I want to explore several things with you, but one of those is part of what you announced when you said, that's it, I'm leaving radio. You said in your statement, you rely on me to seek the truth and to give you my honest opinion. In this hypersensitive social media environment, I don't believe I can do that anymore. So it's time for me to go. I found that statement very arresting. Um, <laughs> Can you can you unpack it a little bit for me? 
It's funny. In the last year, something changed. And I, I don't know if it was the onset of COVID and the onset of the state of emergency, health emergency that we found ourselves in, or if it was the Black Lives Matters activism, or if it was Donald Trump, or if it was some of the LGBTQ+, most specifically, some of the uh, really hard conversations to have about transgenderism. I, I don't know if, if it's maybe a confluence of factors, but it, it did seem to me that something's changed quite remarkably in the last year. In my first five years on radio, I really felt like I could talk to anybody, that you could have a really broad conversation with a full range. I mean, there's obviously really fringy types of ideas and really fringy type of characters that you don't want to, have put to, to give a mainstream platform to. But it is a pretty wide range that you can talk to. And I, I found that when, in my first five years on radio, it was if I made an error, I could correct it in the next segment. Because the nice part about um, a radio environment is that it's interactive. It's live. It's mm -hmm. interactive. And so you'll always have somebody listening who's smarter than you. So if you say something wrong, they send you a quick text. You say, oh, I got this text from John. And he says that I got this wrong and you read it out. And I always felt some sense of comfort about that forum because I knew no one would ever, that I had people holding me to account and I would never stray too far away from the truth because seeking the truth is the most important to me. But what has happened in the last year is um, that it seems to me that there are that the, the avenue to have that broad range of discussion has narrowed that there are certain groups that if you if you uh, or individuals that if you have some kind of embarrassing tweet that goes viral on twitter all of a sudden your entire reputation is destroyed and that is not somebody you can ever have on your show again it's considered that oh they're too radical because they had that that uh, Twitter embarrassment. And so when you have that, you end up with a narrowing and narrowing of the number of people that you're allowed to talk to. I began to see a real problem though, when James Bennett had to step down from his position at the New York Times, that was a trigger for me that something quite dramatic had changed. Um, I got my, I got myself in a, in a Twitter problem myself a few times. I've got, I had, I had three instances where I misstepped and ended up getting a letter of discipline over them. So I'm not perfect. I'm not saying I'm perfect either. But when I, when I began to see that it was potentially career ending was when James Bennett had to leave his position at New York Times. Now he had done something which shouldn't have been controversial. He published an, uh, a column, an op opinion editor. Cotton, who's a senator, about the three months worth of rampage that was happening in the United States after peaceful BLM um, uh, protests, Antifa and Black Bloc and some of the other troublemakers who were the extremists, they, it, they incited riots, they smashed buildings, they set cars on fire. And his op-ed was, we need to call in the military to stop this. And it created such a, an external and internal firestorm that he ended up stepping down from his position. And that to me was quite alarming because back in the day when I was in print media, uh, I also had some missteps there too. But if I ever elicited, put a column out there that was unfair or unbalanced or uh, I got my facts wrong, the solution was let the person appear on the op-ed pages to argue the opposite and then get a dialogue going. And that's how it should be. But the fact that you could lose your job at the uh, at sort of the flagship newspaper in the United States because you dared to publish the opinion of an elected senator 
that told me that the the world had had gone upside down. And uh, then you saw a number of other instances of that. And the ones that troubled me the most were the ones that were on the progressive side, because uh, I think conservatives have been worried and complaining about cancel culture for years. But when you take out James Bennett, who I don't think is especially known for being a conservative, then Wendy Mesley in uh, in in Canada because she was in a production meeting and she said a word referencing the name of a book in Quebec and it caused such internal uh, upset that she ended up getting taken off the air. You also had um, Jessica Mulroney who has is probably like she's got the most famous black friend on the planet in Meghan Markle and she ended up um, also misstepping and getting deplatformed from all of her platforms. Um, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, who started his own alt-left um, media paper, he was concerned about some irregularities that were happening in the voting in the U.S. He was told that he couldn't publish that, so he had to leave his own platform. Uh, Barry Weiss as well with New York Times. I mean, she's a lefty, but because of her pro, because she's Jewish and her pro-Israel stance, um, she ended up running afoul of uh, the internal and external critics. So it was this series of of left-wing progressive cancellations that got me thinking, this is a perilous world to be in. I'm in a, a world where I have to go on the air every day, unscripted, talking about the news of the day, and it is so easy to misstep with one sentence and then your reputation is ruined. If somebody picks that up and it goes viral, your career is ruined. You may never be able to get back into the public sphere. So I lived in quite a state of anxiety for a year over that. And it ultimately got to a point where I felt like the only way to stop this is to not give Twitter the platform and the power to cancel me. So I made the decision after writing that column that you referenced to not only announce that I was leaving radio, but that I was leaving Twitter too. I had 41,000 followers, but when followers become a more of a liability than an asset, I didn't see any value in keeping them. So I left both mediums at the same time. And yet within what you wrote, there were the seeds of, I would say some hope or at least some vision for a better future. Um, when you quote Jonathan Haidt, who wrote in The Righteous Mind, I yearn for a world in which competing ideologies are kept in balance. Systems of accountability keep us all from getting away with too much, and fewer people believe that righteous ends justify violent means. I would agree with that. What's it going to take to get there, though? No, that's a good question. Um... And when I, what I liked about Jonathan Haidt, and his, his book is quite amazing. It sort of changed the way I look at morality in a way that, that surprised me. Because I look at myself as more of an Ayn Rand libertarian. And her framework for morality is based on the individual. What I loved about Jonathan Haidt's work is he expanded out morality to include sort of six different facets. And he um, said that the, the conservatives really have, strangely enough, an advantage when it comes to appealing to people because our morality um, on the conservative side of the spectrum has so many facets. So I hope you can get him on because I tried to get him on to talk about this because it's it's brilliant. But in any case, one of the things that I found interesting about him is he, he kind of called himself um, a more of a leftist. He came from the academic, more left side of the spectrum. 
But he was somebody who quite clearly had great respect for those who were on both left and right. He could see he could see where you could have some common ground between both of them. And, and that's what I think we need to strive for. We have to assume, we can't assume that every time we confront somebody who self-identifies as being on the left, that we're going to disagree with them on everything. And I think the left has to do the same. They have to, they, ha- they can't keep on assuming that because somebody votes for a conservative party, that they're racist, sexist, anti-gay, homophobe, transphobe, anti-feminist, whatever you want to call it. We've been called names for so long that the conversation, I mean, people are, people feel like it's the conservatives that are pushing out the negativity. And maybe it's because Donald Trump was a pretty negative guy. I mean, he really pounded back at his critics, but I would say they're the ones who started it. I remember going all the way back to uh, political rallies that I would I would be at, and the protesters outside Stockwell Day probably was the one I remember the most, where it was racist, sexist, anti-gay. Stockwell Day, go away. That was the sing-song chant that happened back then, and it's been following me in conservative politics. Every time I, uh, can, I a new leader comes up, that's the way the left tries to. Um, tries to tear them down. So, so I think that in some ways, yes, we need to do a better job of not looking at the the left as as being sort of uni- uniformly against everything that we stand for. But the left has to meet in the middle. They've got to stop with the vitriolic language. They've got to stop with the name calling. Otherwise, we're never going to find that common ground. And that's what I tried to do on my show. I tried to bring on both left and right. And my strategy with every guest that I brought on was I am going to find some common ground with this individual that I'm speaking with. It only happened two or three times that I wasn't able to find common ground, but that to me is a measure that it, it can be done and we need to do it. Yeah. Just, just very quickly because we are running out of time. I, I, I have to say I found, I find Donald Trump to be an odious character. Uh, and I, by the way, I thought he was odious when he was, you know, on The Apprentice. That was pr- plenty for me. I didn't have to see more. Uh, his presidency speaks for itself. Um, and I, but I don't want to get do- I don't want to get bogged down on that. But you know, when we talk about being able to find common ground, being able to listen to each other, actually not just listen to each other, but hear each other between left and right. I think it's important. I mean, I don't know who's got to make the first move, so to speak, but but I think the the rhetoric needs the the temperature needs to fall. We need to find some way to see each other as people first, mm-hmm. because we are people first. Before there's any ideology, politics, all of that kind of stuff, we're people before any of that. And and we matter in that sense, and we should matter to each other. I, I don't mean to sound all 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 soft and manby pamby, but there has to be that kind of of common humanity that we have to recover in some way before we can really even talk to each other. Completely. So why I think in some ways um, that that I, I guess we'll have to see on balance whether. Um, Donald Trump fighting back the way he did creates a breakthrough for us to do politics a different way, or if it causes more polarization. I fear it's mm. causing more polarization right now. Me too. Because um, when you see, especially with, you know, Rush Limbaugh died last week as well. And 
he used to be a, a national voice when it came to conservatism. So that's now gone. I don't know if anybody else is going to have the same profile that Rush Limbaugh did. And so what does that mean? It means to me that we're probably going to see fewer and fewer conservative hosts in mainstream media, that we're probably going to see more conservative hosts using these kind of platforms in alternative media. And the danger of that is that if you have all conservatives only seeking all, you know, the alt voice and then leftists only seeking their alt left voices, we won't end up talking to each other. And that's where I'm concerned that this might go is that we end up with more polarization. The, the other thing that could happen though, is that we could all just get tired of this fight. How many people do you know that unfriended friends and family on Facebook because of one or the other having a different opinion on Donald Trump. He wasn't even our president. We don't vote for an American president. Why am I gonna fight with one of my friends over what their attitude is about Donald Trump? It makes no difference to us as individuals. But part of what happened, and maybe what uh, using some of your, your language is that because you found Donald Trump odious, it was a, therefore, you must be odious, too, if you're prepared to vote for him. And mm -hmm. that's what we've got to sever, is that there are lots of reasons why people chose to vote for Donald Trump. 75 million people did. They're not all odious. It's trying to find the reasons why they felt so alienated in the current political environment, the current attitude in Washington, the current representation they're getting from their politicians. He gave them something different. And I think we need to understand what that is. Uh, because I think I think that's where you get to really being able to bring together a broad cross section of people under under one umbrella. So my view is that we've got to go back to local. We we spent so much time looking at foreign politics and foreign federal politics that we've got to bring it back home. We've got our own problems here, um, and I think in some ways trying to fix Ottawa is just as intractable a problem. Trying to fix our provincial level of government, it may be just as intractable too. I would have thought that Doug Ford and Jason Kenney would have been the most freedom-loving premiers in this whole COVID process, yet they've just been as authoritarian as anyone else. So we've got some real issues as well at the provincial level. I'm of the view that the only thing you can do is fix things locally. You've got to run for local council, and in running for local council, the nice part about it is it's not partisan. So you would be in an environment, if you got elected at that level, where you're working with people from a broad cross-section and you're finding different areas of interest so that you can move, work together on issues that affect and improve your local community. I'm involved in Rotary Club, and it's amazing. Most of My Rotary Club is mostly full of retired teachers. And so some of them, when I was on the air, would agree with me on certain things I said during mm -hmm. the week, and others wouldn't. But you're in an environment where you're working together on parades and socials and raising money for the handy bus. Um, and you, you have an opportunity to see each other as human beings. I'm involved in a local charity as well. Um, we do, it's called Wild Rose Community Connections. And we are, we, we, our main focus in the last year has been food security because we've got a lot of seniors in my community. We were worried with COVID and people being shut in or widowed or uh, that, that they wouldn't be able to get a supply of groceries. So that's where we targeted our effort. And I don't even know how the people on my board vote or the people who work for the organization vote because we're all, we're all working together on fixing a need in our community. So those are the things that I think are really the, the opportunity for us. I should also mention I run a business in High River. We, we created a, we have a, a, a renovated 1940s railway dining car 
And that's another thing. Like, you, you can't say, sorry, we'll only accept people who vote a certain way through our doors. You, you, accept, you bring in everyone because that's just how business works. You want to be as accommodating as you can. I've got a, a vegan option on the menu because my brother's a vegan and I need to make sure that my brother can eat at my restaurant. So this is just it. I think that in some ways, going back to your point, we need to rehumanize each other and find the things that we care about in our local community together. Because when you have the conversation about something you both feel equally passionate about, then it broadens out to talking about some of the other things where you might have a difference of opinion. I think this is only going to be solved by doing those things at the local level. And in some ways, the destructiveness that we have by fighting with each other about American politics on Twitter is it's bananas when you think about it. Why are we even doing that to ourselves? Why are we doing that to our relationships? We in some, we just need to turn it off and have those kind of real human connections again. Danielle Smith, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much. You bet. Thanks, Daniel. Danielle Smith, as she mentioned, is not gone from media, just from radio in Calgary. You can see what she's up to and find out about her newsletter at daniellesmith.ca. Well, Danielle has her approach to these issues, but field reporter Peter Stockland has found another journalist, Brian Kapler, who has taken a somewhat different approach to social media. And somehow, Peter found a way to shoehorn in a reference to Tom Brady in his conversation with Brian. So listen to this. Last summer, Montrealer Brian Kapler did what some in the therapy industry might call a self-audit of his social media habits and committed to change. Unable to go totally cold turkey, Kapler cut down his prolific use of Facebook to one day a week and gave himself permission to use Twitter only on Saturdays and Sundays. As steadfast in his social media abstemiousness today as he was eight months ago, Kapler makes an interesting case study given that he spent an adult lifetime working in media as a newspaper journalist his career included stints as a copy editor, Parliament Hill reporter, baseball writer covering the Montreal Expos, national editor, and ultimately editorial page editor of the Montreal Gazette. When retirement age arrived, he had so much ink left in his veins that he spent another three years working for a newspaper overseas. But something clicked that said it was time to quit social media, or at least go on a radical, no surf, no post diet. Mainly I quit because I found it was it was a, a brutal time suck. This would have been last summer, maybe around Labor Day. Um, I was the only ones I really used consistently were Facebook and Twitter. And I found that they had become a, a habit that really gripped me tightly. Uh, if you sit down for any reason, check out Facebook and Twitter on your phone. And I found that it was it was taking too much time, and I began to suspect that it was reducing my attention span. Uh, since long before there was social media, Peter, I was a regular reader of The New Yorker and The Economist and the British magazine The Spectator. And the pile of unread issues in my bedroom was getting perilously high. I was afraid it was going to tip over. So I began to realize that I was spending all my time poking around through ads on Facebook and cat videos on Facebook and other nonsense like that. Um, and then Twitter, of course, is even worse. I got into Twitter a while ago and then I quit it once a couple of years ago, but I drifted back to it because I found it was a good first notice of things that were happening. If there was a plane crash or a scandal or a bimbo eruption somewhere or whatever, uh, uh, Twitter would have it first. So I liked it for that. But I found that the two of them, between them, were 
just taking all my time. In announcing his plans to his social media friends last year, Kapler was candid that he had to break free of the emotional yo-yoing that came with too much exposure to social media. He uses the language of addiction to describe it. Completely addictive, absolutely addictive, and, and, and dangerously so, and really a, a waste of time. I found it was impossible to quit Twitter altogether, but I told myself, okay, I'll do this just on Sundays. I'll stop. I'll just do it Sundays. At first, it was really difficult, but I just told myself there were good reasons for it. There's a broader social concern at work, too. After so many years as an old-school journalist, he did not want to participate in what he considers the junk journalism culture of so much social media. I used to read about the things that, that Trudeau Sr. did in the newspaper, and they'd make me angry, but there'd be a lot of detail there, and there'd be a paragraph saying, on the other hand, it is true that, and there'd be there'd be explanations, and there'd be background, and there'd be context, and so your blood pressure rose only a little. Currently, when one reads about the things that politicians you don't agree with do, uh, so much of it on social media is just one-sided. Look what he's doing now, he's a traitor. Or look what these fools are doing now, they're a menace, etc., etc. And very few people actually want to destroy the country, in my experience. Even politicians I don't agree with. So, so uh, social media doesn't give you any filter or any... Uh, reality lens through which to reflect the actions that you may not agree with. And so you do get angry and you get unreasonably angry and wrongly angry. I had a high school teacher who used to say, uh, there's such a thing as just anger. <laughs> and there is, but you can't be angry all the time and still be just. He sees the collapse of those standards as having real world pernicious effects. Local newspapers that try to do serious journalism are are losing out to to junk journalism online. I'm inclined to think that that happened despite the efforts of a lot of good journalists, rather than despite the efforts of rather than because of the efforts of a lot of of uh, sinister creeps and so on. Journalism today, journalists today, including senior so-called senior journalists online and in newspapers, are younger than they used to be. And with all due respect to what Rod Little in the Spectator calls the youth, I think it's true that experience is a good teacher. The youthful enthusiasm and eagerness and commercial alertness of young, quote, journalists, unquote, in some cases, certainly not all, but in some cases, uh, damages the product. I don't think it's a coincidence that the social media has, has been such a big outlet for wokeness, broadly defined. Now, there are some things about what's called wokeness that are probably healthy for society, but there are many more that are disgustingly dangerous, I think. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that spreads more rapidly through social media, that attitude and the, and the witch hunt culture that goes with it. Having broken free of Facebook and Twitter, Kapler feels no temptation to return noting that he has abundant other ways to make his blood boil by hearing, for example, about the seven-time Super Bowl-winning quarterback Tom Brady's next level of greatness. Indeed, as a lifelong fan of the Raiders franchise, whether in Oakland, Los Angeles, or Las Vegas, Kapler says it would take a theological event involving Brady to bring him back full-time to Facebook or other social media platforms. When Brady, when Brady retires and the devil actually hauls him down to hell, then I will go back on Facebook. For The Long Way, I'm Peter Stockland. I hope our conversations in this episode of The Long Way have given you something to think about, something to debate even. Have any thoughts of your own to share about journalism, toxic culture, or treating social media like an addictive substance? Write to me at media at cardus.ca. Cardus is spelled C-A-R-D-U-S. And don't forget to check out our other episodes at www.thelongway.ca. As always, I appreciate it when you like, subscribe, and share episodes of The Long Way wherever you get your podcasts. For the whole team here, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.